Orthodoxy. My name is Duncan Rayburn and this is the final episode in this short three-part series that I've been doing on faith and self-deception. So we've looked at a few things already. We've looked at what self-deception is and what its characteristics are. There were nine qualities or categories of self-deception that I mentioned. We've also had a look at how four theological virtues stressed within the context of the historic Christian faith or tradition help to, in fact, counteract self-deception. Some of the ideas that we're going to be looking at here overlap with things I've already discussed, but my plan is to build on those ideas to develop a a kind of robust way of understanding self-deception and then also understanding how we might get over it in a way. And what I want to do here in particular is build on our understanding by focusing on the question or issue or philosophical discipline of hermeneutics, uh, which is basically a fancy way of saying that I I want to home in on how we interpret things, because I think that's obviously a, a fundamental issue in, the, in, in looking at self-deception. And I want to start with a classic psychoanalytic tale, uh, which comes from the philosopher Slavoj Žižek. Žižek tells the story about a man whose wife died after a long and and really difficult illness. And the man would talk about it really calmly, surprisingly, and uh, with a tremendous amount of apparent realism, in a way. But all the while while he was talking about Um, what he'd experienced or what he'd seen, he would be playing with a hamster. And the hamster happened to be his wife's favorite pet. So while the hamster had outlived his wife and had some, obviously, some kind of fundamental connection in the man's mind with his wife, people were really um, amazed at how this guy could could stay so calm and collected while he talked about some really difficult and, and tragic things. But, of course... This this show, which is really what it was, was exposed when the hamster died. The, the man went completely to pieces, and he needed, in fact, to be institutionalized to, to recover. It's true in a way that, to take this as a kind of parable, we all have hamsters. Um, like this poor grieving man, we all use all kinds of things to manage our beliefs, to keep reality at bay, which is exactly what self-deception is, as you know by now. Self-deception is is a kind of reality management. Um, well, reality is a problem that belief will always, if only eventually, have to confront. Chesterton suggests, and I love this uh, thing that he says, um, that the collision between the mind of a man and a fact or idea is like the collision between two hurtling railway trains. It does finally prove which is the stronger which is, I guess, what we'd hope for in a way, unless, you know, (laughs) we hope that all the really terrible, difficult things in reality can be permanently kept at bay. But, well, I guess the point that Chesterton is making is reality will always win. Often, when the drive to be self-deceived is strong, collectives will use ideological force to try and get reality to comply. And maybe it can even work for a while, but eventually the railway train of reality is going to smash the fictional train of false ideas to complete smithereens. I know that the relationship between fiction and reality is a complex one, of course. It's not always that easy to tell where one ends and the other begins, but that's not something I want to focus in on here. That's a kind of a different question. Um, so anyway, let me let me recap a few ideas from the previous episodes before I I build on them. 
I've defined self-deception as a condition that ensures the paradoxical idea that the self is both the deceiver and the deceived. Self-deception is essentially belief management, as I've just said. Beliefs are managed in order to maintain a disconnection between perception and reality. And the question underlying the, the previous exploration of the subject is this one. Is faith self-deception? It's this question that is actually at the heart of Ricky Gervais's very funny comedy, The Invention of Lying, which I found unusually smart for a comedy. And that comedy introduces this idea that belief in God may have developed simply as a kind of fantasy to protect us from the harsh truths of the world. In Gervais's world, belief in God is a pleasant fiction, but a fiction nonetheless. And for people of faith, this must obviously raise a few concerns. Does this idea have any validity? Is it wrong? Um, the answer, as I see it, is, well, <laughs> yes. Is faith a matter of self-deception or not? Again, yes. Primarily, I think at its core, Christian theology, and I, when I talk about Christian theology, of course, I'm, I'm aware that there is no unified Christian theology. It's a, it's a mess, you know. If you look throughout history, there have been different positions on different things. But when you look at the early days, specifically uh, the, the patristics, the early church, it was a theology that, de uh, that depended on a kind of argument against self-deception. It was uh, against the ideological systems that blind people, against, in a way, the, the matrix idea of the world pulled over our eyes to blind us from the truth. And so that's the sort of theology I'm talking about. And and there are complexities there, of course, but um, in essence, I think Christian theology has been a very powerful argument against self-deception. But there is always a possibility that the nobler aims of this very subtle way of thinking can be taken up into a larger kind of mass mind or larger socio-cultural dynamic especially when Christianity is perceived as a kind of legitimation for a group ideology. In which case, the very individual focus of early Christian theology uh, gets lost, and then self-deception becomes quite easy. In which case, faith, which is that which opens us up to reality in a particular way, in fact then becomes the support structure for self-deception. And this means that the, the real issue of this question of the relationship between faith and self-deception is what kind of faith um, is going to support our perception of the world. Um, what, what is the nature of faith? The way I see it, faith can be the ground that maintains the disjunction between perception and reality. And faith can be the insistence on setting up a bridge between perception and reality. And that applies to any kind of faith. It's the faith of the atheist as well as the faith of the Buddhist or the Christian or the, or, or the Muslim. If faith is your openness to reality, the thing that grounds your perception of reality, it can either be a, a kind of bridge between perception and reality or the thing that forces perception and reality apart. So there you have a few things that are worth considering when you're looking at the relationship between faith and self-deception. Uh, you're, if you're being honest, uh, when someone asks you about the relationship between faith and self-deception, if they ask you, for instance, is faith self-deception, the honest answer 
perhaps sort of in a hyper academic turn of phrase would be well it depends it could be but also maybe it's it's the antidote to self-deception as I've already suggested a classic case of self-deception is offered in the story of David in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament David has done a string of terrible things as the story goes he's committed adultery he's had his lover's husband killed and and so as we find in 2nd Samuel 12 verse 1 to 27 the prophet Nathan approaches David and tries to get him to see what he has done and this is a quite a, a wonderful way of, of looking at how fiction can reveal reality I just think it's a it's a marvelous little parable and so this is what the passage says and the Lord sent Nathan to David he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it for his guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who came to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is an amazing story, I find, because it reveals the astonishing degree to which David had managed to keep his own reality out of his mind. <laughs> He'd constructed a string of ideas about himself to prevent himself from seeing the meaning and the consequences of his own actions. But as I said in the previous episode, this is something that we all do to some extent. And so the question must be asked, why would we want to deceive ourselves? Well, keep in mind that self-deception is hardly ever conscious. The general principle seems to me to be in keeping with the notion of inattentional blindness. It's a very interesting um, thing to examine, which is this idea that we are only able to perceive what we expect to perceive. This is a brilliant uh, thing to think about when it comes to uh, how we interpret anything, how we interpret reality. We're only going to see or understand or perceive what we expect to see or perceive or understand. Everything else tends to get cut out or relegated to the category of irrelevant. But of course, there is more to it than this. People might deceive themselves because they don't want to experience the pain of being wrong or of having to adapt to a new set of facts or values. Whatever the reasons might be, self-deception is a problem of interpretation. That is how we translate reality for ourselves. It is, as I've suggested, <laughs> a hermeneutical problem. The way I see it, and this is obviously the focus of this episode, there are five hermeneutical force fields that govern human consciousness. And maybe I've, you know, these are probably uh, worth expanding or contracting depending on how you see uh, these categories, but I think it's a very helpful way of looking at how we look at the world. 
And what I would say is that if we fail to be aware of these hermeneutical force fields, there's a pretty strong chance we're going to end up falling into various traps of self-deception. The five hermeneutical force fields are identity, familiarity, temporal proximity, simplicity, and determinacy. So I'm going to look at each of these. So if you didn't get them the first time, that's okay. So let's first look at identity. But um, I'm probably going to mention this again just to reiterate later, but but just bear in mind that these are all how we look at the world. Um, they're not bad things, but they have loopholes, I guess, or, or liabilities that are attached to them. So, okay, first, identity. As philosopher Hubert Fingeret notes, self-deception is not fundamentally about belief systems, although these are obviously affected. Rather, it is fundamentally, primarily about identity. And you, you've seen how this plays out in, in some things I've already mentioned in previous episodes. People want to maintain a particular self-image of themselves and an, an understanding of their place in the world that is stable and predictable. You can see this play out pretty powerfully in the so-called egocentric bias, which is this tendency we have to seek out information and interpret in a way that is beneficial to the ego. And this could be the individual ego or the group ego. And a really great way to notice how this plays out is in the way that people select motivational verses from the, from the Bible. So, you know, I've, I, I don't know, years ago I heard Britney Spears um, quote this one from Philippians 4 verse 3. It's the verse that says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you'll find verses like this printed, you know, like with pretty flowers or sunsets all over the place uh, on the Internet. It's kind of wallpapers that people put on their desktops or something. Um, you could find another verse like Mark 9 verse 23, which says, all things are possible for those who believe. So I mean, it's like super motivational stuff. But when you look at verses like these kind of ripped from their context, ripped from the kind of larger tradition, they can look terribly egocentric. And they can actually be taken to mean whatever you want them to mean. This is like one of those Rick Warren booklets where you fill in the missing words without bothering to figure out if maybe you're just creating all kinds of excuses for the Bible to say exactly what you want it to say. As a kind of joke antidote to this, It'll be fun to create kind of, you know, I guess, biblical demotivationals. Um, put a pretty picture of a flower up with Malachi 2 verse 3 uh, printed on it. That verse reads, I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices. <laughs> or Psalm 137 verse 9, which reads, Blessed are those who seize your infants and dash them against the rocks. Or maybe something random like 2 Timothy 4 verse 14, which reads, When you arrive, bring the cloak that I forgot, with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. That is that is like my life verse, because it's like, get my books, please. Um, or try this one as a kind of weird demotivational. It's Leviticus 21 verse 9. If a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father. She must be burned in the fire. I'm doing a terrible thing here too, just as hermeneutically violent as people do with the more sort of upbeat, positive, happy-go-lucky verses, but hopefully I'm making a solid enough point. 
we tend to find what we're looking for. Uh, and that we're, we, we have these biases that are there to affirm our particular egocentric stance. And this is also evident in some way in the belief bias, and that's what it's called, which is this tendency to interpret the strength of an argument on the basis of whether one agrees with the conclusion or not. For example, in apologetics debates, it's common to find polemics even when polemics are not necessary. People might assume that the other position is necessarily wrong just because they have assumed that their own position is right. But again, the issue here isn't just rationality, but identity. So, which this is a very interesting thing. Um, I was speaking to someone the other day who mentioned something very incredibly negative that one apologist had mentioned about Kierkegaard. And what was amazing to me is that, you know, Kierkegaard is pretty brilliant and ingenious, not not without flaws, of course, um, no philosopher is, but the amazing thing is that the apologist had sort of, I don't know, blamed Kierkegaard for the kind of downward slope into some kind of abysmal post-modernity. And I just, one of the things that I had to point out was that that apologist had completely misunderstood Kierkegaard. So it's that's what I mean. It's like the belief bias is you assume you're right and then you assume by inference that someone else is wrong. And that's just, it's a kind of nonsensical thing to do. Linked with all of this uh, is, of course, the second hermeneutical force field. And this is familiarity. The reality is that the familiar is more easily assumed to be true than the unfamiliar. This is something that that's pretty disturbing when you think about it. It's something that that horrible Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels noticed when he said this, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. That's a really scary idea, right? His issue wasn't truth-telling, but lie-spreading. And the key to spreading lies was familiarity. If you keep on repeating something, people will just believe it, even if it's totally untrue. One of the cognitive biases that we all have, albeit to different degrees, I guess, is, is known as confirmation bias, which is linked to the belief bias that I've already talked about. This is the tendency we have to interpret in order to confirm what we already know and believe. And with hermeneutics, this is always going to be a problem. Let's take a really contentious example. I'm joking. It's not that contentious at all. But let's say, what happens if you're adamant that if you're a guy, you should have a beard? Well, if you're an evangelical, you'll probably want to have some kind of proof that having a beard is biblically right. Now, this is interesting because you will find plenty of evidence in the tradition to help you on your way. You'll, for instance, find that Charles Spurgeon said that growing a beard is a habit most natural, scriptural, manly, and beneficial. St. Cyprian confirms this when he writes that the beard must not be plucked. You will not deface the figure of your beard. <laughs> this is such a crazy thing that, that there are people even discussing this. Augustine agrees. He says that the beard signifies the courageous, the earnest, the active, the vigorous, so, when we describe such, we say that he is a bearded man. Clement of Alexandria also took his beard pretty seriously. In his writings, we find him saying that God adorned man like the lions with a beard and endowed him 
as an attribute of manhood, a sign of strength and rule. So those of you who have beards, uh, there you have it. Uh, well, that's just from the tradition. You're going to need some scriptural proof if you're in <laughs> a beard evangelist. Um, and actually, it turns out this is not that difficult to find. Leviticus 19 verse 27, for instance, warns against beard and hair trimming. And 2 Samuel 10 verse 5 tells us that lacking a beard was a sign of shame. Judges 16 verse 17 explains that Samson would get weak if he were shaved. But of course, this is all just silly. And yet, the familiarity force field is hard at work in our interpretations of all kinds of things. What, for instance, does the Bible say about the morality of sex before marriage? Well, it turns out it doesn't say what purity movement pundits would have us believe it says. And what about whether marriage should be egalitarian or complementarian? Well, rather confusingly, the Bible has a lot to say that supports both views. Turns out, some of the major debates around biblical issues are impossible to resolve because... In more than a few instances, the text can be made to say whatever the modernist hermeneute would want it to say. Confirmation bias is troublesome, but it also has its benefits. In fact, arguably, it's why we have such a wealth of different scholarly approaches to theology, which I think is really interesting and exciting. It's what keeps theology fascinating, really, to know that it can cater to all kinds of different people. We're not dealing with sort of a, a clear scientific, uh, empirical, universalizable thing in some ways, because it, it is, there are things that are universals, but uh, there are things that are very particular to particular people. So my advice on this front is not that we should eradicate confirmation bias in, in, a, in a way. The only way to really eradicate confirmation bias is to kill yourself, because that would ensure that there's no you there to confirm what you think. I think it's actually just better to be aware of your biases. And you could ask, for instance, how institutions have shaped your beliefs or your own personality. What are your preferences? What are your priorities? It's also worth asking how tradition has shaped your beliefs and expectations. What denomination are you a part of? What are their theological assumptions. Do you operate according to a kind of mo modernist hermeneutic or a Talmudic one? Are you, say, a Gardamerian or a deconstructionist? You get the idea, right? Like, we approach the text in the way that we are, and it's very worthwhile noticing how our preferences are going to guide the way we interpret things. The third hermeneutical force field is what I would call temporal proximity. The idea is actually pretty simple. Immediacy and delay affect the pressure according to which we act and believe. Simple idea, let me <laughs> repeat that though. Immediacy and delay, in other words, the temporal proximity of something, um, affects the pressure according to which we act and believe. Let's say, for instance, that someone asks you to donate money to their cause. You say, Wow, great idea. I can totally see that they need money, and I'll do that. But then you forget about it because your life is crazy, and you go on doing what you're doing, getting busy with the things you're normally busy with. And then just before you go to bed, you remember what you had decided previously. And trouble is, you're tired, and you need to sleep, so you go to sleep. Then you forget about it completely. When you wake up, you get busy and all of that stuff. And then a week later, you think about it, and you think, well... Wait, why did I want to give money to their cause again? They're probably fine. They probably don't need it. 
and you move on. Procrastination is related to this. You're, you're far from the deadline, so it's not an issue. You have plenty of time. And then a day before the deadline, you suddenly totally freak out. The panic monster in your mind wakes up and you suddenly have to work through the night to get the job done. What is crucial to notice on this point is that we rationalize incredibly well. Uh, all of us do in different ways. We make excuses profoundly well. This points, I think, very profoundly to our default. Our default mode is what we'll gravitate towards when there is no immediate pressure. This is why altar calls get used in some churches. The psychology behind this is that people know that if you don't make a commitment now because of whatever emotional hype has been stirred in you by the existing setting, you're going to end up defaulting. So get up here right away and make a commitment. Well, that's pretty much the idea. What, what I want to point out at this point is that self-deception, just thinking about it, can, can make you a bit cynical, which is not my intention. I just, I just think we need to be honest about what's driving us so that we can find out better ways to be and live in the world. Now for the fourth hermeneutical force field, which is simplicity. This is our tendency to oversimplify. We we all need to do this, of course, because life is plenty complicated. So we need low-resolution representations of how the world is to just be able to cope with it. You can't store the idea of every individual cat in your head, for instance. So what you need is a kind of compression algorithm that averages out every cat into a single concept, cat. Trouble is, we easily then oversimplify. Just because you know what the general idea of cat means doesn't mean you have met my cat. Actually, I don't have a cat. I just thought I'd, you know, throw that out there. But so people like their low resolution representations. They're happy with their compression algorithms. This is why people tend to prefer reading the tabloids over reading, say, Tolstoy's War and Peace. And that goes for academics as much as it does for the general population. Simplicity is just easier to cope with. And I, I think that when life gets complicated, the default mode of being in the world is to move towards simplifying. There are all kinds of biases that exemplify this tendency to oversimplify. Stereotyping, for one thing, or assuming outgroup homogeneity. That's the assumption that our enemies are all the same. They're all like that. <laughs> when radical right-wing feminists say that all men are pigs, for instance, you have a pretty good example of this. You get the idea. There's there's a tendency to use the compression algorithm and to treat it as more absolute than it really is. And that absoluteness is actually a problem of simplicity or oversimplicity. Another cognitive bias that works on this tendency to oversimplify is the narrative fallacy, which assumes that just because you've understood the simplified story about a thing, that you have in fact understood the thing itself. Then there's the clustering illusion, which is uh, where we find patterns in chaos, or the focusing effect, uh, where an event or idea is given exaggerated importance, a little bit like my example of uh, the deadline or the, the, the pressure to give to charity, for instance, um, that I've already mentioned, or straw manning. Straw manning is where you make your opponent much simpler than they really are. We like simplicity, and that's not a crime, um, because it really has wonderful uses. It helps us to navigate the world. 
but it's important to remember that it is never the whole story. It is only a part. An example of how simplicity can wreck things in theological terms is how people understand heaven as a biblical concept. Where do we go when we die? Heaven, right? Well, this may be surprising to you, but the, the idea of heaven has four meanings in the Bible. It's the abode of God, a synonym for God. It's the reign or rule of God, the way that God's goodness sort of permeates the world, in other words. And it's literally the sky. But it is never once mentioned in the Bible as the place you go to when you die. Yet, weirdly, that idea is the one that people think is the most authentic, generally. Uh, so, in, a, in an attempt to simplify the complex theological concept, people have, in fact, allocated the exact wrong definition to it. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Yeah, pretty instructive to, to recognize. Which brings us, at last, to the final hermeneutical force field, which is determinacy. Again, this is a wonderful thing, not bad at all, but if we're not careful, it can trap us a bit. The idea of determinacy is that people tend to draw final conclusions even when there is ambiguity and uncertainty. In general, humanity just doesn't seem particularly well-wired for ambiguity. Even the most radical deconstructionist, tot totally paralyzed in the face of a bewildering universe, has to act in highly determinate ways. Even the, the deconstructionist needs to go out and buy milk with actual money, <laughs> for instance. But it's true that we do experience an awful lot of ambiguity, especially in complex texts like the Bible. This is why rabbinic sages adopted several reading strategies, including Peshat, Dirash, Remez, and Sod, and I'm no doubt pronouncing those incorrectly. The idea in sort of the, the rabbinic schools was that multiple interpretations could be accepted as part and parcel of the human experience of the divine. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate through the story of the Tower of Babel that a monological take on God is hugely problematic. So there you have five hermeneutical force fields that, while unavoidable, can also be pretty huge contributors to our self-deceptive tendencies. I mention all of these as a way to promote a fairly simple idea, which also happens to be pretty tricky when it comes to putting it into practice. The idea is that we need to become aware of our biases. This amounts in practice to learning to notice and then to let go of our ego attachments. One helpful tool for doing this involves doing something like a hermeneutical self-inventory. This would involve, for instance, asking about your personality. Are you high on openness or low on openness, for instance, in terms of the five-factor model? You, you could ask about your own church history or other authoritative criteria like your conversion experiences, your heroes. Um, are, is Calvin your hero? Is Chesterton your hero? Is the Pope your hero? <laughs> what is your default theology? That's another really important question to ask. What biblical translation do you prefer and why? And what is your attitude towards biblical scholarship? I think this is one thing that really perplexes me. A lot of people who, who talk um, very excitedly about theology are often 
remarkably theologically illiterate. They've, they've say, read in one particular stream of theology, but have not even for a second genuinely considered other theological perspectives. And there are theological perspectives out there that are worth considering. And I think that, that basically, again, confirms that some people are just looking to confirm their own sense of identity rather than to genuinely explore their ideas. Of course, I'm speaking in generalizations, which is always dangerous. Another helpful tool for checking your biases and just noticing where you come from is is this one. Just ask if you had to choose a single verse or phrase from the scriptures upon which you as a reader were to base your entire life's work, what would it be? That, that could say a lot about what you're likely to see, you're likely to be looking for, not only in the Bible, but in the world. After all, as St. Thomas Aquinas notes, the things that we love tell us who we are. So there you have my series on self-deception and faith. I hope that you have found it uh, interesting and challenging. Thanks for listening in, everyone. Cheers for now.